Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining our webcast. Today, we're pleased to present Speed as a Competitive Advantage. I'm Melissa Moore, executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening November 16 to 19 in San Francisco. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speakers today are Mark Little, Mark Graven, and Eric Rees. Mark Graven is moderating the conversation. Mark Little is head of GE's Global Research, one of the world's largest and most diversified industrial research and technology organizations. GE's research facilities in the US, India, China, Germany, and Brazil focus on the company's long-range technology needs. Mark joined GE in 1978 and was named SVP and CTO of GE in 2005. Mark Graven is VP of Customer Success for software company KaiNexus and founder of LeanBlog.org. Since 2005, Mark has worked exclusively in healthcare and has become an expert in the field. Mark is author of the book Lean Hospitals, Improving Quality, Patient Safety, and Employee Engagement. Eric Rees is author of The Lean Startup and host of The Lean Startup Conference. A few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it with a Q colon. Our speakers will answer questions in the second half of the webcast. No need to ask your questions twice. This is a one-hour program, and the recording will be available a few days after this live webcast. Take it away, Mark. Well, thank you, and thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We're going to jump right into questions and, and start off uh, with some context uh, between Eric and, and Mark. Can you tell us how you ended up working together to implement lean startup ideas and principles at GE Global Research? So Eric, I'll, I'll go first here. So it's a, kind of an interesting story. We were struggling to introduce a new product, and this new product is a piece of heavy machinery. And our CEO, Jeff Immelt, was complaining endlessly about how long it took to do it. And he was pushing Ivan review after review, and he finally got to the point he would say, please just lie to me. I can't stand it. You tell me it's going to take so long. Please just lie to me. So Beth Comstock, my good friend, who is our chief marketing officer, knew Eric, and he brought him in, she brought him in to be a spark for us to help us think differently about how to drive innovation with speed. So she connected me and a bunch of the engineering leaders who were developing this new product in our training center in Crotonville several years ago. And I'll just add, you know, it's funny to hear the story from Mark's point of view because from my point of view, uh, you know, I, I had had this relationship with, uh, with Beth and I didn't know a lot about this product or even product category. My background is in software in Silicon Valley, so this is a heavy industrial application. And I, I get the sense, you know, looking back on it, that, that maybe this application was chosen precisely because people were a little bit curious about whether the software guy would have anything interesting to say about it, you know. And so I, you know, I showed up to... to kind of do this training together and, and to have a conversation. And at first I was very uncomfortable. I was very nervous. You know, everyone <laughs> at GE jokes that I didn't know the difference between an engine and a turbine and I used to use the two words interchangeably and I was just really driving them crazy because uh, that's not my background. But the conversation we had that day was about, you know, what is the long-term plan for this product, you know, which at the time, of course, was, was in a very traditional waterfall development style of multi-year development. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars spent in the research phase, followed by, you know, a big bang deployment, you know, conveniently five or more years away. And we started to have a conversation about, well, what are the leap of faith assumptions that have to be true in order for this product to work? And the more we talked about it, the more I felt like, wait a minute, this actually is a very familiar scenario to me. I, I personally have made this mistake more times in my career than I would care to admit, and this is 
know, this is the bread and butter of what we talk about in Lean Startup, which is trying to identify, you know, are there ways to accelerate the um, learning that we need about those leap of faith assumptions so that we don't, you know, unexpectedly find ourselves five years from now building an amazing product, you know, so say us, that customers don't actually want. And that, you know, that was the beginning of a very productive conversation. Now, so, I just, Mark, if I could just add a little more context here. So this uh, meeting that where Beth introduced us, we were together in our training center in Crotonville, New York, and there were a bunch of people like me who are probably closer to twice Eric's age than Eric's age. And we've been through lots of product development and school of hard knocks and all that. And we're looking at young Eric and we're thinking, what the frickin' hell is this young dude going to tell us about anything? And what, what transpired was an interesting unfolding of recognition on our part that his experiences could actually teach us a lot about how to think differently. And we've, we've really learned a lot from Eric. Well, that's that's very kind of you to say, Mark. And, and you know, and I, I was very cognizant of that too, being you know basically the youngest person in the room for this meeting. And the level of you know skepticism and the beginning was really high. And I've gotten used to that now. You know, I've done this uh, now for the last few years, so I have been in that situation. I'm getting more and more comfortable with people looking at me like, why on earth are we having this conversation? <laughs> but what I really appreciate in retrospect, when I look back on it, and now having been other places where people haven't been quite so receptive, the skepticism I think was totally healthy, which is like. Is there some depth and rigor to this, or is this just like yet another Silicon Valley business guru fad, you know, thing? Like, like what is the substance of it? And to me, the part of the conversation that I remember being really um, interesting was when we talked about what is the lean in lean startup, right? Like, what is this based on? And you know, people sometimes complain, oh, lean lean startup is a phrase that is confusing because it makes people think, oh, it's about cheap startups and. Uh, you know, we've had this conversation many times about you know people's misunderstanding of what Lean is all about. But one of the great things is that GE has this real background in Lean and in Six Sigma and these kind of like manufacturing-based, very rigorous um, uh, foundation. So to be able to connect this new thing to that to say we're not this is not starting from scratch. This is taking something a core competency that the company already has and saying, well, how would we apply those ideas in a different domain? Right? I, the way I characterize it is in the domain of extreme uncertainty when we're trying to create something new and we really don't know enough to make really good forecasts and projections. And I, you know, and I, Mark, I commend you for, for your open-mindedness in that, uh, in that moment. And really, that's been my experience, you know, across the GE Corporation. It's such a big company. Uh, you know, I've been in a lot of rooms with a lot of skeptical people, but when we start to talk the details of product development methodology and the specific outcomes that, that we can drive better with Lean Startup, uh, people have been very enthusiastic. Now, let, let me ask, you know, uh, what were some of the early experiments or early success stories, Mark, that maybe helped bring other skeptics along to see that this actually could uh, work and be beneficial within GE? Yeah, so we, out of that initial connection, decided that we would try a number of pilots across the company. So we brought teams who were starting new product introduction across the entire GE portfolio together again in our training center in Crotonville. And this, the subjects range from things in our appliance businesses, which have short cycles, to things in our oil and gas business that might be, might be multi-year cycle. And just as Eric was describing, people come into the room with great skepticism, but went out with a different mindset about speed to market and how to think differently. And we were actually able to achieve, just by thinking differently and deciding to act differently, quite substantial cycle time reductions. I'll give you an example. In a turbine design project in our oil and gas business, which has normally a three-year cycle, we decided to do some things in a parallel pathway, not a serial way, 
and that meant we had to build up some extra inventory, which we are loath to do. But the result of that was much better speed to market. And once everybody bought in on that, it really made a change. And example after example like that came true over the company. Mm-hmm. Were there? You, know, you talk about uh, the speed to market, and um, you know, within big companies, public companies, there's uh, a lot of quarterly pressure. Um, were there any um, conflicts internally around this idea of speed and accelerating learning with some of the traditional business measures and, and pressures that you were facing? Yeah, Eric talks about innovation metrics and, and the whole discussion around that and leap of faith assumptions and identifying what you really don't know and what you want to learn fast really helped us think differently. So by identifying a leap of faith assumptions, making paths to go check them out quickly, and putting in milestone funding helped everybody come along, including including the hard-nosed finance guys who want to be sure they're getting a return. But it, by virtue of the fact that they could see progress and have decision and control points along the way help them get much more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll, I'll just tell another story um, from one of those early teams um, where you know, we were basically having this conversation about what do we really want to optimize for. Like, like the real debate here is like what, what does it mean to be, everyone agrees that we should be efficient in our development process, but what efficient with regard to what? Now the claim of Lean Startup is uh, we should be efficient towards getting the learning from customers uh, about what they really want and, and the, that experimental quickness. That's that's what we're going for. But that's you know that was a little bit controversial at the beginning. And I remember one of these meetings where we were discussing with the engineers about the possibility of doing things in parallel that would otherwise be done serially. And you know we got the team kind of to overcome their skepticism, get excited about it. And then the leader of that team kind of had to go back from our workshop into their business. And we asked them to keep count of how many meetings did they have to have to get permission to pursue this new approach. Now, any outside person looking at this new approach compared to the old one would say it's a home run so much better. I mean, we get to the customer, we get customer learning like within a matter of months instead of years. We we get the finance people would love it because we would have as Mark was saying, we have decision control points that have insight into whether our commercial thesis for the project is not right. We'd have that information like after spending more like 1 or 2 million dollars rather than 100 million dollars. So there's a lot of things to like about it. But the flip side was there's more rework, there's more inventory, things are done in an unusual way. And uh, he counted for me that he had to have 42 different meetings to get permission to try the different approach. This was now very early in our process. So, so most of the now, you know, and, and people hear that and they're like, oh, that means the people he's having a meeting with were stupid or something. But no, like you got to really look at it from their point of view. Every one of those middle managers that he's having a meeting with, it's their job to keep everybody on the on the same page to enforce uniform standards across the company to protect the company from risk and to make sure that the company's procedures are followed. So you can't. One of the big mistakes I see people trying to make these innovation interve- interventions in big organizations is they just start knocking down walls left and right and they start to just like say, well, they, you know, all processes banned and this team can do whatever they want. And, you know, the systems that these companies have, they're smart. They're like they have an immune system. So you punch, they punch right back. You can't just start making changes at random. So, so we, you know, it was interesting. We went from this kind of doing like, we started doing one project at a time and then we were doing kind of four at a time and then we we're kind of doing eight at a time. So we were doing these individual projects, but as we built up a critical mass of success stories and as the project teams went back into the organization, that allowed us to kind of have the bigger conversation with leadership to say, now what can we do uh, as a leadership, you know, from a leadership level to support those teams uh, so that when they go back into their organization, they're going back into a more welcoming organization. The, the managers that they're dealing with, the leaders they're dealing with, understand Lean Startup and can support them in their entrepreneurial efforts. And that 
that kicked off a lot of really hard work on the on the part of the folks inside of GE driving that transformation. So uh, a question, another question for Mark. When you talk about the idea of learning from customers, getting a product in customers' hands, was that a difficult you know, cultural transition for engineers and product development people to get early or minimum viable versions of a product actually in customers' hands? Was there risk in, in doing that in certain situations? Yeah, so as Eric was indicating, we have processes in a culture that drives for high quality execution, on time, on budget, product does what you say it's going to do. And that's all good, but we, what we've recognized is we need to get learnings from our customers as fast as possible. And just to go back to the original example, we had initially a five-year cycle for this product, which is not uncommon for a product like that. But in thinking through the whole concept of minimum viable products, we decided to adapt an existing product that we had to get it to the market early because the market space we were shooting at was a different one from the application of that original product. And to learn from that as we develop the, the Big Bang product and to modify the thinking about the Big Bang product based on that learning. Now the really interesting thing was, it was, as you're asking, difficult to get people to sign up that they're going to do this extra adaptation. But the miraculous thing is, we actually got about $50 million worth of business for that minimum viable product that we never expected to get. So it's virtuous in all kinds of surprising ways. Mm -hmm. Eric, do you have any thoughts on that and kind of your interactions with people as they were maybe trying to get comfortable sure. with getting a product out there? I, I don't think Mark will mind if I tell this story. Uh, again, going back to that, in that initial project, um, this particular the product was designed, um, because it was going to be so expensive and take so long to develop, it was designed to be used in five different uh, use cases. So I always, you know, I always have this kind of like acronym, you know, everything at GE is like in the air, on a plane, on a train, like <laughs> at sea. You know, it's like if this piece of equipment can be used in one place, by God, you know, we're going to make sure it's useful everywhere. So the engineering challenge of it had been dramatically increased by the fact that we had to, you know, had to work equally well, you know, uh, you know, in, in a truck and in locomotive and at sea, which, which have worked are radically different use cases in terms of the efficiency requirements, the weight requirements, etc. And, you know, so it, I remember talking to the team and, and we're talking about, well, what if we only pursued one use case? Or what if we only tried to create a, a minimum viable product to satisfy one customer? And that was very controversial because at the time people were saying, well, hold on, if we do that, then the ROI of this project just went down. You know, if we can be in five use cases, we can sell to five times as many customers. If you take us down to one use case or even one customer, so so people are getting very nervous. And then I remember saying, you know, again, another minimum viable product is all about de-scoping without necessarily a loss of quality or safety. So not just do half and you know half a half a product, but uh, figure out how to uh, reduce the scope to get to that first learning. So then we talked about kind of use case de-scoping is one thing that changes the weight and efficiency requirements. If we go to an easier use case. Then we talked about manufacturing. I remember asking one of the engineers, how long would it take to create a single engine? And at first they were like laughing at me like, kid, you don't understand how manufacturing works. Once you set up the supply chain and the manufacturing run, you build the factory, you know, it takes the same amount of time to produce one as a thousand. That's, that's how it goes. And I was like, I'm sorry, my mistake. I didn't mean one line of products. <laughs> how long would it take to create one single individual unit? And then the engineer started to be like, well, you know. Uh, we have this existing one that we could modify. And we started to get from like five years down to one year down to one. And then she's like, yeah, I think in 30 days we could have this, you know, and like, and, in the, and I remember talking to some of the VPs. We had some, some executives present as well and asking them, hey, if I had this one individual product, 
do you know any customers that might want to buy that? And one of the one of the uh, uh, sales leaders said, you know, I, I actually have a customer that comes into my office practically every day begging for that, in which I'm like, I'm, I'll get all excited. I'm going to broker a deal right here in the room to sell this minimum viable product to the first customer. And one of the other executives, you know, kind of arms crossed, says, wait a second, hold on, wait, wait pardon me. A second ago, we were talking about making hundreds or even billions of dollars in profit for the company. What is the point of selling one individual product? It was as if I had suggested to him that if he picked up a quarter off the street, he'd improve GE's balance sheet. Like it was that it was that ridiculous. <laughs> a concept like we're not. We used to be talking about ROI and the billions and the thousands of percent. Now we're talking about you know nothing. And I remember having to say, "Listen, you're absolutely right. If you already know what's going to happen in the future." If you believe in the forecast for this product, if you already know what customers want, then then everything we're talking about is a waste of time. And I kind of feel like in the moment he was basically satisfied, like, oh good, that I can kind of stop paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, Mark and, and some other leaders were there to say, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. But how, but but do we know what's going to happen in the future, and, and would this learning be valuable? And that that really is the key that has unlocked a lot of conversations inside the company because when you put it that way, you you really tap into people's desire for their products to be successful. You know, as much as we accuse engineers of engineering for its own sake and designers of loving design for its own sake, and you should hear the things, every function has things they say about the other functions, you know, behind their back. But at the end of the day, in a well-run company with a high-performance culture, what people care about is results. And they care about having their products be successful in the market. And so when you can connect people's uh, passion to do that to saying, look, this is just an alternate path to get to that success that you crave, it breaks down a lot of resistance. Yeah, just to reinforce Eric's point, the notion that we can learn and get better by the learning as opposed to defending the PowerPoint charts that predict a future that's really unknown is a powerful thing for us. It's really shifted the way we think to wanting to get that learning as fast as we possibly can with MVPs across virtually everything we do. Mm -hmm. Now, Mark, you know, were there concerns from, you know, we talk about a different functional area that, that's important, uh, legal. We're, we're, uh, there are different ways of working with them, or did they have concerns about some of these approaches and uh, not wanting to do anything? You know, in the Lean Startup approach, talk about fail early, fail often. I'm sure that's a word legal didn't want to hear, the word fail. Um, can, can you talk about what you've done uh, working with legal? Yeah. Well, there's uh, no doubt that if you wait to the end and bring the lawyers in to help us think about barriers after the cake is mostly baked, that's problematic. What we've learned is to bring the legal team in at the beginning to make them part of the solution and part of the process. And in every FastWorks project we have, we have a legal person identified to own that alongside the team. And that has really helped us go faster from the beginning. Um, can, can you talk about some the specific examples, um, I think we have some time to kind of delve into. I read one article, it was about GE fuel cell and how that was set up as a, a separate entity, which is interesting. It makes me think of a little bit of what Clayton Christensen would say about disruptive innovations, carve out a space, give them some freedom. Can, can you maybe talk about that example and what some of those dynamics were? Yeah, so just to get everybody up on what we're talking about here, we have a really great innovation, I think, around something called solid oxide fuel cells. So this is a fuel cell technology that operates at high temperature. It allows you to introduce a, a fuel that you break down, or it might be a natural gas that you don't need to break down. You pass it through the fuel cell at a high temperature. It generates electricity. And then the residual fuel goes through a reciprocating engine or a natural gas turbine in a combined cycle system. 
the combination of the fuel cell plus the engine or the turbine can generate electricity at 65% efficiency. The best central station power plants today, best in the world, are 62% efficiency. So here you have small-scale distributed power at a higher efficiency than the best-in-class central station power, a complete inversion of the paradigm. And we think we have a killer innovation here that we can do this at a very low cost. The innovation was completely dreamed up and demonstrated here at the GE Research Center. We are building a business out of that today. We actually took the people from here and put them off-site. They're 20 miles away, so they're not terribly far from the mothership, but they're far enough away so they can do their own thing. That liberated them from a lot of our internal bureaucratic mechanics and enabled them to go very fast to build up their capability. We've hired some outside people in to do the marketing side. They are thinking through their own version of minimum viable products, and this is a business that we're very excited about. But from the beginning, we set them off to be something different. Eric, you're involved in this. What's your view? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like this is, you know, I, I know that, that, that I spent a lot of time with this team, and this, this technology really has such revolutionary potential. They, they, I, they told me at a certain point they were kind of tired of having to give tours to outside people who wanted to come see the technology with their own eyes, and just people want to, it's like, a, it's, it's, a, it's a marvel. If this if this works in the way that, that, you know, I certainly believe that it will, this will have a, a really strong impact on what we think of, what, which, like, what electricity generation looks like in the world. So it's a very exciting product. And... Well, you know, when I first talked to the team, you know, the, the scientists who had done the research, you know, were, were very much expecting that at some point they would kind of hand this over to some commercialization process, that they, you know, had some, some kind of vague idea of what that would look like, but it was, you know, it was very much a science project that, that it was an expectation that kind of, it would be commercialized somehow. And to go to them and say, listen, using FastWorks, using Lean Startup, you have the opportunity, if you want, to actually build a startup around this without having to leave GE, without having to quit your dinner, without having to give up the things you like about the job that you have now, but given, given the opportunity to be free of some of these, uh, uh, you know, kind of bureaucratic controls, but still in a way that we could make comfortable for the rest of the organization. And one of the things I think is really important, this, FastWorks, the program at GE that, you know, that has been implementing Lead Startup, from the very beginning has been a cross-functional collaboration. You know, Mark has been an, an absolutely stellar advocate uh, from the engineering side, but he mentioned, you know, his partner in crime, Beth Comstock, on the marketing side. The, you know, uh, people in the HR organization, uh, CIO. You know, this has been cross-functional, and many of the business PNL leaders have been very supportive from the beginning. So, this is a project that requires a lot of innovation on the technology side, but it also requires innovation on the commercial side because if you can, you can totally change the way that electricity is generated and the place that it's generated. You could change the business model of how electricity is delivered as well at the same time. So there's a lot of questions about who exactly is the customer. When you have a, a truly disruptive product, you don't have any existing customers for it because nobody even knows that they want it. And you know, people always talk about the iPhone or something, you know, kind of a glib example of people didn't know it, they wanted it until they see it. But this is in that same category. It's like so radical, so revolutionary. A lot of customers have a hard time understanding what it means. So it was very exciting to see uh, the team kind of step up and say, yeah, we'd like to take on the challenge of being founders of this startup rather than just scientists working on the, on the technology. And the big breakthrough for folks I've worked for, with from the research lab in understanding Lean Startup is a lot of technology transfer programs out there, when scientists get into business, we basically teach them a form of astrology. It's like everything you learned in the lab 
forget that. You know, now we're going to talk about predicting the future through PowerPoint and you know, may, willing the future to happen through your, the power of your mind and all kinds of other nonsense. And Lean Startup, because it has this foundation in scientific experimentation, we could say, listen, we want to apply the same scientific rigor you used to make the breakthrough in the first place to the assumptions and questions you have about the market and customers. And, and I hope Mark won't mind me telling this story. Um, there was some debate within the company about whether these scientists would be willing to work side by side with their commercial marketing and sales counterparts because, of course, in the different functions, we have this sometimes this feeling that the people in the other functions don't, um, don't value our contribution. And I, I sat with some other leaders in the company. I said, listen, let's have this team go through a FastWorks workshop, and I'm going to make the following prediction. I predict at the end of the workshop, this team is going to ask to have commercial and marketing people added to their team. And I promise I won't say a word about it in the workshop. I won't tell them to ask for that. I, I, that was a deal. And one of, it was one of the leaders from the company was in the workshop present to observe to make sure I stuck to my word. And we're, we were there for like eight hours really going through leap of faith assumptions. Lean started very intense. And about hour six, I'm starting to get a little nervous because it kind of hasn't come up yet. But I, I have faith. So we keep going. And at a certain point, the scientists are like, we're starting to really understand, okay, these are our leap of faith assumptions. We need to get with customers and get contracts in customers' hands and get customers pre-order. We need to get customers understanding this product and understanding what they really care about ASAP. And they start to look around. They're like, does anyone here have a Rolodex of customers that we can call? And does anyone even know how you make those? And they, at certain point, they're like, we got to get a commercial leader on this team right away. And I'm like, I could almost bust out laughing because I'm, I'm like making eye contact with a person who's there to observe. And, we're like, and I'm like, and, and a lot of people in the company thought, you know, they're like, oh, it's like magic. He has some kind of mind control power. But... It's not mind control. It's actually just a, it's a rigorous framework from first principles. It says, look, a cross-functional approach where we take the best of our engineering and marketing and sales and legal and IT and all those functions, we bring those people together and make them into a true team. That's the way to make this happen. And even people who have been extremely resistant to working in that way under the old system, when given the opportunity to work in this new system, can be very enthusiastic about it. So just to round out the story, we are in the process of building the startup. It's used every Lean Startup principle from the beginning. It's very exciting. I'm having a review this afternoon to talk about it. We've, we've targeted the, the system that I described to you. That's about a megawatt-sized system, which is 1,000 kilowatts. As we've explored this with our customers, we're finding that they may want, in the early days at least, some 10-kilowatt systems. And the discussion this afternoon is going to be around do we pivot to push our production capability toward that, or do we stay the course? So all these things, leap of faith assumptions, minimum viable product, speed to market, built right in from the beginning. It's been now, awesome to see. Yeah. Now, let, let me ask one more question, Mark, before we uh, transition over to the – there's some really good questions coming in from the audience. But, you know, in, in general with Lean, whether it was back in manufacturing or healthcare. You know, organizations are, are trying to simultaneously get um, better quality, better speed, lower cost. A lot of times people think that's not possible until they get introduced to lean principles. How would you summarize, you know, in those three areas, the, the success, the results you're seeing so far, what you're projecting into the future? What, is it really possible to have better, faster, less expensive uh, development and launch of products? Yeah, I absolutely, totally, absolutely clearly believe to my bones that this is all possible to do together. And the way to, to get it in the optimum way is to do it all together. You know, we have all these sort of bureaucratic processes for getting quality in what we do. We, we're going to keep that, 
but we're getting to get the speed in by doing these lean startup kinds of things. So I am certain that we can get all of that together. No question in my mind. And is there a fourth dimension there? If you look at, you know, I guess, the percentage of new products that are successful or meet expectations in the market, would you expect to see uh, a higher success rate with the products that come out of Lean Startup or FastWorks? Yeah, well, definitely, because the whole idea of listing your leap of faith assumptions, not being completely bought into them, and having the idea of learning fast and pivoting as you learn, it certainly will make us more successful. I can see it even today as we do these things. Mm -hmm. And, and Eric, do you, what, what thoughts do you have on that? Well, I've seen a bunch of projects you know, that I personally, I've, I probably worked with, with 50 or more teams as a coach in, in GE, God, I don't even know how many it is now, a lot. Because um, uh, like like, for people who are kind of interested in the transformation, this is both a tops down and bottom up thing at the same time. Like, You've got to be working with teams and on the ground understanding the reality of the people that actually do work for a living, and you've got to spend time with leadership and executives to make sure that they are, are supporting and driving that change. No offense to my uh, executive colleagues. Um, <laughs> and 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 what what I see with those teams like there's a lot of projects you know we've talked primarily we're, we got Mark Little on so we're going to talk about industrial and research and really you know new product new category new tech science projects basically kind of projects but we've seen this applied not just in spinouts like the fuel cells business but in you know in commercial operations in IT in internal projects in really small things we talked about some of the appliance projects where the cycle times are really actually quite short software projects we've seen it. Um, in, in things as simple as the terms and conditions and contract negotiations we go through with customers and then don't even get me started on aviation that's like a whole conversation unto itself where the everything that is done in the aviation business is so unbelievably complicated that we've seen some really promising results there you know it's early days a lot of these projects you know even in a, in a business where the the natural cycle time of an industry is the new product every five years or every ten years you're not going to see overnight success but what I can say is I have personally witnessed dozens of projects that I would have said before the transformation had close to a zero percent chance of success and now they have achieved a non-zero chance of success you know it's not it's not a hundred percent chance it's not you know, but, but the team has a prayer and when you when you have teams I mean I meet so many teams who they really want to succeed but they know in their hearts that they're not doing the things that need to be done or they at best feel like it's a lottery ticket they're like I, you know we're gonna work on this thing in the dark in the dungeon you know quietly in a secret for years and then boom, hope that it goes for the best. It's, it feels, has that lottery feeling, the morale can kind of ebb as you go through it. People get promoted out of the team before the thing launches, so you have to, like, it's all these problems that when you reverse that, you get the sense of morale, you get the sense of excitement and enthusiasm, and so you have these teams that have gone, like I said, to, to non-zero, and, and anyone in Silicon Valley understands that non-zero chance of success is really a high compliment for a new product team. You know, that, that's what we aim for. We can't guarantee success, but we can increase its probability. Past zero. Mm -hmm. Just a point of emphasis, uh, the whole idea of having introduced the language around pivoting into our company by itself is a very big deal because what it says is from the beginning I recognize that I don't know everything that I'd like to know and that changing my mind and going in a different direction is not a fatal flaw, it's part of the process. That's a very liberating, refreshing, opening thing that enables to go faster and learn and get better quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark, is, is there an example that comes to mind of uh, a pivot that occurred? Was it a shift in the product, a shift in the business model? Yeah, th there are many examples of this. Uh, there's, a, there's an example playing out today in our heavy-duty gas turbine business where we had started down a path 
of approaching the marketplace thinking that the customers wanted, above all else, reliability, durability, and flexibility of operation. As we started to think about lean startup principles and leap of faith assumptions and challenging them with customers early on, we learned that that wasn't the right approach. We pivoted and changed to a different design, and we are getting very substantial recognition by our customers that that's the right thing to do. Customers whom I've known for a very long time, a very tough mind, are telling me, you didn't have the right product before, now you have the best-in-class product. It's a very striking example to me of exactly this thing. And this is in a big scale. A, a turbine like this may cost $50 million. So this is a big ticket item we're talking mm -hmm. about here. But yeah. even there it applies. Okay. Well, great. Well, I think we'll transition. We've got a lot of questions that have come in uh, from the audience. There was a question uh, from April. How did GE accomplish efficient learning in highly regulated environments? So, for example, I'd be curious if, if this applies in medical devices um, where, where there's FDI, FDA oversight. Um, were there challenges that you faced? How did you overcome that in those environments? Yeah, so the, the FDA regulatory environment is, is a really good place to focus this on. We cannot in any way avoid getting regulatory approval on things, but what we can do faster is get the steps in place before we get to the regulatory approval to make sure that when we get there we not, not only have a device that's high quality and, and reliable performance but is suitable to the market. So it's the, it's the preceding process that really matters. But we, there's no way we can change the FDA process. We have to just right. adhere to it. Right. You know, one of my favorite stories working with one of the healthcare medical device teams, they, they did, we did the thing that, that, uh, that Mark talked about, which they thought was kind of crazy at first. We brought legal and compliance and regulatory onto the team from the very beginning. And, you know, a lot of times there's conflict between the product teams and the regulatory teams because they're always wanting to do things that push the boundaries and it's the compliance officer's job to say no to that stuff. So to put a kind of a negative compliance person on the team from the beginning was seen as quite controversial inside the team. They were worried this person was going to be annoyed. And, you know, the person, when they first came to the workshop, were not exactly having a great time. And I remember this moment when the team taught, was, was debating some MVP concept, and they wanted to um, pre-sell something to a hospital before it had regulatory approval. And, of course, the team said, oh, no, we can't do that. Of course, everybody knows that the FDA requires that if you're going to pre-sell something, it have approval first. So you can't pre-sell an MVP. And the regulatory compliance person, who was quite cranky at the moment, said, excuse me, uh, have any of you read the relevant statute and guidance from the FDA? And the team said, well, no. Like, do you honestly think that it's one sentence long and it says, thou shalt not pre-sell a price? You know, does that sound like the kind of thing the federal government would do? He said, no. He said, well, I, it's actually my job, and I have read the statute, and it's 10,000 pages long, has 92 sub-clauses and 87 exemptions. And did you know that the specific MVP you just described is covered under clause... 35 subpart B exemption 12, that the FDA would prefer that you did that, you know, as long as you do X, Y, Z, you know, they would prefer that to the thing you were otherwise, and they were like, team, look at their jaws on the floor, like, what are you, really, is that, is that true, and they're like, and they're like are you, is this a trick, or is this for real, and they're like, he's like, no, you, how, how do you, you're going to go to the FDA and tell them this device works if you've never tested it in a hospital, how are you going to know what to tell them, of course they want you to tell, like, and he's like, well, you got any, and all of a sudden this person who everyone, previously considered to be the most unhelpful, you know, most negative person in the world. It's like, like, let me help you build the MVP because now we can build safety, quality, and compliance into your experiment from the very beginning. You won't have to come to me at the 11th hour and ask me to do something illegal. It's like, it, from their point, it was a huge win. And, you know, and the team, again, they, they thought I had committed some kind of mind control. It's like, how did this person transform 
from a troll into the super helpful person. What did you do? And it's like there was nothing in the water. It's simply getting the right structure around the team to allow this to happen. Mm-hmm. It was fun to watch. Uh, Mark, another question. I'm, uh, I'm going to actually combine two questions here that were similar. Um, they're, they're asking, Mark, what was the initial impetus for bringing in Eric? What was the, the original spark? Had, had somebody seen him, him talk somewhere? What was the exposure there? And what recommendations do you have for then trying to start this conversation within a major organization? This person said DOD, so I assume that, that maybe that's that's not just wishful thinking, that's where they work, um, and, they, and they want to try to apply this. Is a, um, so a two-part question, where, where do they initially start, where do you think it might start in a, a really large organization? Yeah, so I was involved in the project that was, by everyone's judgment, too slow, taking too long, an inefficient process from the beginning, but I didn't know a way to change that. My good friend Beth Comstock, who runs marketing, knew Eric and, and knew that he could be a spark for us. I did not know that. And as I said earlier in the, in the in this discussion, she brought him in. I was highly skeptical of that. And then it just caught fire from there. But it took somebody who could see that somebody who was different from us could actually help us think about our challenges in a different way. And it, that, that means that you have to have an organization who has its tentacles out, who is listening and learning for people who can help you think differently, and is open to engaging with people like this. But it took, it took a crisis to get mm-hmm. us to the point of being ready to engage. Well, and it sounds like there's that combination of what you were saying. You recognized internally there was a problem in terms of speed of development, but then... Yes. You know, Beth being in marketing, I guess it's a good sign that there were connections for her to even kind of pass along that insight or a potential solution to you. You know, and, and, and I, I point out the role of Jeff Immelt in this story because, you know, he, he doesn't, I, he doesn't have a very flashy style. Uh, you know, he's not always on the news front page in his leadership style. He's, he's much more low-key, but in a lot of the, the transformation that we've done with Fastwork, you can see his fingerprints on it, and this is a case where he's the one who's frustrated about the fact that he's going slow because he's had he's the one who's at a leadership level has had the realization that something needs to change and is making sure that the that that, that inside the company there's aware an awareness that this is a problem. So he's not even though he's not at that time prescribing the solution, he's he's saying to Mark, listen, I, I want to see this, I want to see something different here, I want to see a change, and that's helping create the sense of urgency. To, to go outside and do something that you know didn't make everybody super comfortable at the beginning. If he thought everything was fine and the status quo was going to work fine, you know, I, I just don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. So, so back to the other part of the question, I'm curious for either of your thoughts. Um, you know, the person is asking about DOD. Is it a matter of somebody in leadership finding a problem, finding something there equally dissatisfied, or you know, what do you have advice if you were talking to a counterpart, even at a, another large? Uh, corporation. Um. Yeah, you have to have somebody who's ready to think differently, to explore different options. You know, when we first engaged with Eric, I, I didn't know who he was, I didn't know what was coming, but I had an indicator from my colleague whom I trust a lot that maybe there was a possibility here. So we had an organization that was connected, could think about different things, and was open to a change. So if the DOD, which has lots of these same kinds of cycle issues, and sure as heck, they need to get their stuff right with speed. If you have some leadership who's open to that, then get them connected up and, and things can start to change. It did for us. 
Yeah, and if the person from the DoD is actually listening, there's a person you want to talk to. His name is Todd Park. He's the former chief technology officer. Uh, uh, he now has a special job, which is to funnel people who think in the way we're talking about into the federal government, and he has had tremendous behind-the-scenes impact on a number of government agencies, and he's a very nice and approachable person. If you tell him that I sent you, I'm confident <laughs> he will return your email. So just, just drop him a note and say, hey, I want to do Lean Startup at the DOD, and he'll know what to do. Yeah. And if I could help with anything with the DOD, I would be glad to as well. Wow. Uh, another question for you, Mark. How did, um, or what, what types of tools and processes were put in place within GE to capture, retain, and distribute learnings from different experiments um, to, to all the pertinent players? Yeah, so as I, I mentioned, we started off by doing a number of pilots that were visible across the businesses. So each business had a pilot, or maybe two. And we set it up so that senior GE people like me and my colleagues who are on Jeff's staff were deeply engaged in these from the beginning. Beth was involved, I was involved, others were involved as well. And we talked about this very openly in our corporate executive council, so meeting of Jeff's top 40 executives. Uh, we had Eric come in to speak to us. We distributed the, the learnings quite broadly. I lead a team of the engineering and technology leaders across the entire company. They were deeply engaged in this whole thing, and it was a steady progression of learning, and much more important, the results that we had to show that got everybody on board. It's really kind of an interesting thing for me. I cannot go to really any GE meeting, whether, as Eric was saying, it's a technology thing or a commercial thing, and not hear people talking about leap of faith assumptions, minimal viable products, speed to market. The language has really taken hold in the company, not because we were muscling it in from the top, we stimulated it from the top, but it actually works. It really actually works. So people pulled it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, related question here about you know, spreading and sharing ideas. How is GE working to share and spread Lean Startup methodology company-wide, um, even looking worldwide? Are there certain countries or business units that have a higher priority for lean startup training or implementation? Yeah, so uh, just to, to go back to the beginning, uh, we started off with lean startup and our own version of this and even some more things in a basket we call FastWorks. And we've had FastWorks training for leaders and we've had FastWorks coaches across the company. We have FastWorks coaches for virtually all the new things we do, including Eric, on a number of the higher profile products like projects like the solid oxide fuel cell. Eric, maybe you could talk some about that. Sure. You know, so so the, the elements of this, you know, I, I've seen this in, in multiple companies now. You start with these pilot programs, you build up a critical mass, you get to that kind of executive tipping point where you say, look, the leadership decides that there's enough here to say, yeah, we want to do this in a more broad way, not just one project at a time, but more. And I, I remember the moment in GE uh, and, and it's a really important thing, you know, people know that I do some consulting, and of course I, I've acted as a consultant to GE, but I don't run a consulting company, I don't have any associates, there aren't 500 trained, you know, FastWorks black belts running around GE telling people what to do, I, I, don't, I don't believe in that approach. So um, every company that I've worked with has been successful at this, they have had to build their own internal function to drive the change and to build the internal coaching practice, and I, I think that's an essential best practice. So there's a core team at GE Corporate who drives FastWorks, uh, they don't get nearly the credit they deserve publicly. 
Uh, so let me you know, say that they have done an incredible amount of work. If you read about FastWorks in the press, it often makes it sound like you know Mark and Jeff and these senior leaders said, "Let it be done," and then boom, it was done. And sometimes the hard work that went, you know, that translated that mandate into reality gets missed. And one of the moments that really sticks in my mind is the team after we'd done maybe 25 projects. Uh, the team working with Mark and Beth and the, and the leadership presented a plan to Jeff Immelt to train every GE senior leader in FastWorks and to really go business by business, region by region, function by function, to make sure everybody had exposure to it. And they built a two-year plan to make that happen. And I remember the, that they had the meeting with Jeff and, he, and they came back and said, well, the good news is he liked it. The bad news is he wants a two-year plan done next quarter. <laughs> And so we went on the road. You know, it was like a in very intense few months of my life, and for everybody on the team. Uh, and when we say every business, I mean every CEO, every PNL leader, every functional leader. This is something that people overlook a lot. You know, you, you got to get the head heads of engineering, HR, legal, marketing, sales, compliance. I mean, every function you got to touch them, and then all the regional leaders as well uh, went through went through this training. And so um, it was like it was at a moment when we had enough credibility and enough stories of success that we could talk to those people even though they were quite skeptical and say, look, I hear that you have your skepticism, but let me tell you about examples in your own business where we've overcome obstacles, we've had success, and this is, you know, this is worth adopting. And that, although that was very intense and it was a lot of work, I think the, the benefits were well worth it. Mark, anything else you want to add to that? Or? Well, I think that's pretty comprehensive. I think you got but, but the fundamental thing is that you can push from the top but if the ideas aren't good and if the practices don't result in benefits, they never stick. Mm -hmm. This stuff sticks. Yeah. Um, what, uh, Eric mentioned uh, black belts. There were a couple questions that came in kind of along the lines of, you know, a company being uh, so well steeped in Six Sigma and uh, lean and manufacturing, it, was that beneficial uh, for people to see kind of if you know uh, adaptation of that into fast works and, and lean startup or were the people in product development areas not necessarily as uh, involved with Six Sigma or lean? No, our technology. I'm speaking from the tell uh, mainly here, but we practice Six Sigma in a serious way. We train our people on what we call design for Six Sigma. There's a rigor to those practices that are, is very, very positive. We have not abandoned that in any way. And as I was trying to say earlier, I don't see that as any way incompatible with what we're doing with the Lean Startup activities and FastWorks. They're very, very much complementary. Mm -hmm. So did that make it easier, being complementary, and did that make it easier for people to embrace? Yes, yes, yeah. And they like, like the idea of keeping the rigor and the exactitude of the the Six Sigma stuff with the speed of the lean startup stuff. It's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'll tell a story maybe that both Marks can appreciate. You know, I've, I've had to meet with the Six Sigma leader in a number of the businesses on, as part of doing this. And, and again, there's often some skepticism there because like, wait a second, what is this new thing? And I, I actually met with a person who had a mug on their desk that said failure is not an option. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget this. You know, they made such an impression <laughs> on me. I was like, if I had a mug on my desk when I was in a startup, my mug would say, I eat failure for breakfast. So, you know, it's like we're coming from totally different worlds, right? And, and of course, the, that, that's like a comical version of the really deep theoretical thing we had to understand is that Six Sigma and related methodologies are about reducing variation. So variation and variability through standardized work and pull and all these other improvements uh, because variability is your enemy in a manufacturing process. Standardization is your friend. But in an innovation context, variability can be positive 
So there's positive variability that if you eliminate, you prevent innovation from working, right? Positive variability means sometimes you put in a dollar and you get out zero. Actually, most of the time, but sometimes you put in a dollar and you get a thousand or ten thousand dollars back that you weren't expecting. Sometimes, like we've had several projects, you know, in FastWorks where the minimum viable product that took much less time and energy to build was much cheaper to build. Not only does the customer accept the MVP, we've had several customers say, "Thank God you brought me something simple for once." I'd pay you twice as much for this one. This is a brilliant innovation. The engineers sometimes go nuts. They're like, what are you talking about? This one's not an efficient. It doesn't have this feature. It's not as good. And the customer's like, I didn't want all that crap. This thing is simple, and I understand it, and I, you know, can I have it right away? So that is not, you know, that's positive variability. So, you know, having a methodology to eliminate variation when that's needed, like on the manufacturing floor, is really important. And having a, uh, having a methodology that can exploit positive variability, as in FastWorks, is really important. And the six sigma leaders inside of GE, when we've when we've understood that that this is a, an equally rigorous, you know, process that can work in a different context, that has been very positive. Um, here, another question. Uh, I guess maybe for Mark first. How do you deal with a team that thinks they're doing lean startup and they throw the terminology around, but they're primarily relabeling their old way of doing things? You know, I don't see that very much, so I don't have a good practical-based answer for you. I, I, I really do think our people are adopting the practices and taking them to heart. You know, just, just a, a reflection on our previous discussion, too. If you're a scientist, and many of the people here at G Global Research are PhD-level scientists, they like the rigor of Six Sigma. They understand the statistical thinking. They understand eliminating variation. But when we talk to them about the ideas of lean startup, they say, well, isn't that just the scientific method? I lay out my assumptions, I make an experiment, I learn, I change. It's what it is. So once people get it, it's kind of a natural thing. The ideas are so logical and straightforward that it really, really sticks. I mean, Eric, do you see what you know, the, the person writing the yeah, question, sure. I don't know if they've experienced that. Have you well, seen if they, it in if other they spent 10 minutes in Silicon Valley, they probably have heard that. <laughs> it's, it's actually funny. I, I see more of that here than I do inside of GE, and, I, and just for the reason that Mark said, that mm -hmm. there's a lot more bullshit factor here. Um, you know, and people, people sometimes hear that, and they're like, they can't believe I'm serious, but, but it's true. That is, uh, uh, Silicon Valley is a wonderful place. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Uh, so, you know, innovation, it's like a company town where innovation is the company business, it's the town business, but there's also a lot of bullshit that goes along with that, just like in, uh, just like in Hollywood, you know? But uh, we've got to the pre question, I think the previous two questions together and say kind of what are the backgrounds or skills in operational excellence that help people adopt um, Lean Startup? I've seen five contexts that can be really helpful because they build transferable skills. A background in Lean Manufacturing at Six Sigma, super helpful if you can make that translation. Um, military background has been really helpful. Anyone who's, who's ever studied John Boyd and the OODA loops and, and that kind of iterative way of understanding uh, team dynamics is very important. There's a new book from General McChrystal called Team of Teams that gets into that in, in great detail, which is great. Um, people who have a background in true disruptive innovation, so obviously the super high-tech people really understand Clayton Christensen. The, you know, that's why the apps and the Ubers and the, the, kind of the Silicon Valley folks have really, uh, really embraced it. Um, people who have a design thinking background, so that's another methodology that, that shares a lot in common with Lean Startup. And so if you look at a company like Intuit, where they had this program they called Design for Delight, had a lot of uh, some aspects of it that overlap well with Lean Startup that made it easier for them to adopt. Um, and the last is, is just what Mark's talking about, science. If people understand experimentation, a scientific method, you know, if they understand what a falsifiable hypothesis is, they're already, you know, 50% of the way to understanding Lean Startup. And it, you know, my 
my goal with this has been from the beginning to make it you know, as much as possible to build on the good things that have come before, to create those attachment and connection points, to make it easier for people to see the rigor that is behind all this. So although sometimes you hear people bullshitting about the bumper sticker version of, you know, oh, MVP this and, you know, pivots that, you know, when you cut that BS away and get down to the core, I, I, you know, there's something real here. That's, that's the message I always want people to take away. We've got uh, another question here, uh, maybe for Mark first. What can individual contributors do to manage up their leadership to get them to open up to uh, the speed to market thinking? Any advice or thoughts? Yeah. Um, go to the basic principles of learning and learning fast. And the whole idea of laying out your leap, leap of faith assumptions is a darn good place to start because it makes you think through what you know, what you don't know, and what you need to know, and to lay out a plan to go to get that. That, I think, is a very helpful starting point for the whole discussion. Eric, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right on. You know, people are used to thinking that whatever problem they're having or obstacle in their way is their boss's fault. And, you know, it's like probably the most natural belief in, in human history. But um, the truth has been, I have a, I, I, I sometimes joke and call this like the golden sword for cutting through red tape. There's like a, a single one-page document that says, listen, as a, as a leader myself, as an individual contributor myself, here's what I propose. It's a deal. Here's the bargain that I would like from you, my boss. In exchange for the kind of air cover I need from you and some basic support, don't ask for more budget. Usually ask for less, but I'll, I'll take less resources, but they're dedicated, cross-functional. So I've seen a lot of you know, part-time teams of 25 cut down to a full-time team of five. You know, like give me a small dedicated team. Give me 90 days and... Uh, you know, give me some air cover to run these experiments. In exchange, here's what I promise you. I can't guarantee you success, but I will show you my leap of faith assumptions. Uh, once a month, I will show you progress against those. I'll show you the learning that we made. Again, not in the vanity metrics, so I'll show you a lot of money or a lot of customers, but I'll show you on a per-customer basis. We're getting better and better and better at, at creating something that customers want, and I promise you that 90 days from today, I won't ask you for a single dollar more unless I have validated learning that we're on the right track. I have seen that single one-page document cut through the most amount of a seemingly insurmountable you know, uh, bureaucracy. Because from the leader's point of view, now you're, you're saying, basically, give me increased accountability, and I promise you results. And in most companies, no matter how messed up their culture may be, or no matter what other stuff is going on, like people who get results and get things done can earn points with leadership to, to try new things. It's just, that's like, just basic. Mm -hmm. Um, we've got time for maybe you know, a couple more questions. Um, Mark, how do you make sure that a new product that's developed using this methodology um, doesn't die, that you don't lose the spirit of learning and iteration and improvement once it moves into more of a large-scale production environment? Yeah, so that's not so difficult in our environment because with the nature of our businesses, we, we make a lot of money off the service of our install base, so we are constantly looking for ways to upgrade and get more capability, capacity, reliability, you name it, out of the devices we make. So it's a very natural thing. People are looking for those kinds of things. And the, again, as, as I said, the, whole, the methodology is infectious. Once you see the power of it, the value of getting speed, the value of getting to market quickly, it just helps you carry on. So I think a very natural course of events for us. Mm -hmm. All you really need is a sense of ownership over the product. If the team that did the initial learning gets to carry it through through the commercialization and scaling, they tend to bring that culture with them. Mm 
And um, it's funny you mentioned support. There was a, a related question that asked, uh, does selling MVPs, if then those get institutionalized, does that create uh, exponentially more unique products that require support and service? What's the impact that you see from that? Oh, so uh, let me be sure I get the question right. I think the, what I'm interpreting here is that the question is, does the idea of MVP create an endless stream of one-offs that you have to have to support? Or, the, or at the, least higher variety. Uh, yeah, no I, no, I don't think so. I think what we learn from the MVPs is how to focus into the ultimate set of products that you want. And it is a maturation process, and it is a toning process. But it doesn't mean you have a prolifer proliferation of endless one-off devices. You just get to the better devices in a more steady state faster. We've had a number of teams where they just build into the contract for the sale of the MVP that the company will reclaim that and replace it with the final product at our at our own expense because the total number of customers affected by the MVP is so small. It, you don't need to be especially profitable on those initial units. You can you can cover whatever costs are needed, and so you actually you proactively try to get those one-off devices out of the marketplace once you're done learning. Okay. And as we um, start to wrap up here, maybe first Mark and then Eric. Mark, is there uh, any other point that you wanted to make or maybe a, a, a thought or piece of advice to leave the audience with? No, I, I think we've covered a lot here. I just leave with what I think I've already said, and that is that the methodology is powerful. It's simple. It gets to the truth, and it's real. So if you apply it, it can help change your culture, the way you think about things. But my own experience across a very big diversified company is that people gravitate to it because it is a refreshing set of tools that help us think in a very realistic way about what matters most and enables us to get to the truth quickly and to get better products faster. What's not to like about that? <laughs> yeah. I, I, can't, I can't improve upon that in any way. Uh, that's, uh, you know, you can't. You can't ask for a better spokesman in Mark and, and a better supporter in, in driving this change. So I just, Mark, I want to say thank you for your leadership and in, in making this happen. And, you know, hey, and for giving me the opportunity to come in and, and get to know you guys. It's been really... Uh, well, it's been great. You, you've been fantastic for the company, Eric. Thank you. Oh, that's that's awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And and the other Mark, thank you for moderating. It's always a pleasure to see you. Well, sure. Thanks. Well, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you to both of you. And I, I think, Melissa, I'll hand it back to you. Okay, thanks to everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Eric, Mark, and Mark. So this wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast on July 9. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference, November 16 to 19 in San Francisco. Bye, everyone. <laughs>